You're listening to Rabbi Daniel Lappin On Demand. The Blaze Radio Network. On Demand. The more the world changes, the more we find comfort in the things that never change. This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin On Demand. On the Blaze Radio Network. sail away. Throw yourself into the battle. Welcome, all you happy warriors, eager devotees of the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show. Why do I call you happy warriors? Well, because to live productively, you have to fight every day against the force of entropy, if nothing else. You fight to maintain your possessions, you fight to build and maintain your family, your business, profession, career. Life is a fight, and that is a good thing, to stop fighting, to stop seeking and striving, is to lay yourself down to die. And I call you not just warriors, but happy warriors, because to throw yourself into the fight for eight or ten hours a day, six days a week, well, that's one thing. But to do all that with a debonair smile on your face and a jaunty pace to your stride, to do all that while generating an irrepressible surge of happiness welling up inside your soul, well, that means that you must be spiritually grounded in everything that is life-affirming. You are probably devoted to your faith, certainly to your family, your finances, your friends, knowing that you can triumph over those who both intentionally and inadvertently promote a dark abyss of satanic secular socialism as well as all the many social pathologies it generates. When I reveal how the world really works on this show, it's in the hope that you will help defeat those pathetic creatures of modern secular fundamentalism, those orphans in history who possess neither Christian fortitude nor even pagan ferocity, which would be welcome. Those hideous hermaphrodites and fanatical feminists running our media, education, and government bureaucracies, who possess neither the strength of men nor the intuitive wisdom of women. But oh, what damage they manage to inflict. But never fear... Here on the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show, I solemnly commit to help you transform timidity to triumph. Together we will replace diffidence with determination and displace the divided counsels of doubt with the steady eyes and firm hearts of those who, just like us, 
know where they are going and know just how they are going to get there. We strive for success, first with our families and our faith, then our finances and our friends, forming bonds of the like-minded, and after that we will be ready to take on the formidable task of saving our frighteningly fragile civilization from those who would force us to surrender our freedoms and our souls to the whims and dictates of those who consider themselves to be our superiors, our elites, our betters, our bosses, our rulers. But before we change the world, we have to change ourselves. Before we make the world a better place, we have to make our homes and businesses better places. And then our efforts and our dreams become leveraged and together we can achieve so much more. The two sure ways of building your bridge over the dark abyss of mortality is by building a family and building your finances and connecting with others who share your worldview or even others who share only part of your worldview. But the key thing is to connect. And the trap is that today we believe that connecting is ever so much easier than it ever was at any point in the past. Why? Well, technology, of course, that's the answer. That's what makes it all possible. And we all develop this misguided and mistaken faith in the extent to which technology is going to change our world. We'll change our world at will, but not necessarily for the better. What am I talking about? Well, let me go back to 1994 when Speaker of the House Newt Gingrich brought about a, uh, a huge Republican revolution and uh, it, 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 didn't, it didn't last very long and it, it had its flaws, but uh, I was somewhat involved with Speaker Gingrich. We were friendly at the time. Uh, we, we were involved together in several projects. And on one occasion, uh, Speaker Gingrich, or who I called Newt, everybody did, uh, he, um, he made the following statement, and it was in a group of, of um, a number of congressmen, a few senators. It was in his uh, office on Capitol Hill one evening, and he said, the Internet is going to radically transform education. For the first time, everybody is going to be well-educated. And uh, I, I have to tell you at the time, I, um, I didn't say anything until we were chatting afterwards. He said, what did you think of my remarks? And, uh, and it's always difficult because when you are near the levers of political power, uh, it is an intoxicating feel. And the last thing you want to do is make the source of the power feel so uncomfortable that he never wants to be around you again. But at the same time, I thought to myself that uh, I'm really of no use whatsoever if I don't uh, speak the truth. And so I said to him, you know, it was, uh, it was inspirational remarks. The only thing I didn't agree with 
was that the Internet is going to change or transform education for the better. That isn't going to happen because all that the Internet is going to do and all that technology is or has ever done or is ever going to do is to accentuate that which is already there. The good can be made better and the bad can be made worse and will be. And so uh, technology has always been used effectively by good societies. It's also been used for repression in bad societies, more effectively to police and monitor and spy on citizens. Um, technology has helped with medicine in societies for whom medical progress is an imperative and a priority, and uh, technology has only harmed things in societies that had dreadful uh, med medical delivery programs in the first place. And so I don't think education is anything different. Uh, I think schools that uh, were already doing well will use technology effectively, and those that are uh, delivering an appalling quality to their students um, will continue doing that, but uh, now they will use technology to both uh, camouflage the fact of the horrors and to uh, distribute blame in a harmless manner from the point of view of the bureaucrats involved. Anyways, he uh, dismissed my uh, remarks, of course, and, uh, and so it was. But nonetheless, it is a true reality. What I mean by that is that, uh, well, perhaps the place to start is to ask ourselves, what does technology really mean? And it's worth glancing at because right now, there, you know, you may be contemplating buying a new piece of technology. It might be something as simple as a smartphone. <laughs> Listen to me. A smartphone with more computing capability in the palm of your hands than went to the moon in the summer of 1969. Uh, you might be thinking of getting some new technology, uh, either to improve your, your business or... Uh, you think it'll be useful for your family, a combined family calendar system. You've got something. Or maybe you think that um, you're not a very good user of time, and so you're going to get some time management technology. You're going to get some organizational uh, technology, <clears throat> some project management technology. That is going to help you become more effective than you really are at the moment. Well, if that is the case then perhaps the next few minutes that we spend together would be valuable because, well, technology. Technology did not begin with a smartphone. Technology didn't even begin with a fax machine. Technology didn't begin with a telephone or the telegraph in 1844. Technology didn't even begin 100 years earlier than that with the Industrial Revolution. No. What you've got to remember is that the guy who came up with the idea of um, windmills or putting a ship's rudder on the stern post instead of over the side, or the guy who figured out, wait a second, if we can run water down off the top of a water wheel instead of simply dipping a water wheel into a flowing stream, uh, 
the guy who came up with each of those things was looked at as the Steve Jobs of his day. He was a hero. Um, at, by the way, in the period we're talking about, you know, are the so-called Dark Ages. And that was, you know, roughly, shall we say, between 400 and 800 A.D., something like that. Um, so within those 400 years, a lot of things came about, not all at once. Uh, and the guys who came up with them were, were these, I mean, incredible innovators. Why? Because they came up with technology. Uh, when the uh, when t mechanical timekeeping came about, again, 1300 to, to well, 1300 to 1800, that period of time where t mechanical timekeeping was constantly being improved until finally the accurate chronometer was developed by John Harrison in about 1760, uh, without which navigation didn't exist. Navigation was hit and miss because in order to know find your latitude and longitude on the surface of the earth, you absolutely have to know what time it is in Greenwich at that very moment. And inaccuracy, even uh, to the order of 10 seconds, throws you off by miles. It's quite serious, says I, having actually once navigated from Los Angeles to Honolulu uh, on a sailboat using, yes, a sextant. And, uh, you know, I was sort of cleaning up the other day, just um, uh, trying to get over the uh, uh, destructive effects of our uh, basement area having flooded rather badly. And, um, and I, you know what I came across? I came across a battery-operated uh, computer for converting, for for. For you, for for converting the um, the sextant reading of uh, the sun or the moon or a star, and use instead of using, it used to take me uh, close to an hour of arithmetic using naval sight reduction tables, but I also took along this little computer which I never completely trusted, but anyway, it, it was accurate and quick, into which you could enter all the details of your uh, sight. And it would throw out um, information from which you could compute your latitude and longitude. Anyway, I just came across that, and I, I mentioned that. But anyway, uh, all of the, the people who came up with these things were technological giants of their day. So uh, if you were to come up with a definition of technology, and I, I can't say I've spent a lot of time thinking this through, uh, but uh, you, you might find it interesting as dinner table conversation with your family, uh, or with friends, what would be the best definition of technology? Because you've got to remember, the, the guy who first threw a tree over a brook so as he could walk across it, well, that was technology also. Uh, the guy who figured out how to control fire, you know, and, and heat things. Great technology, a technological innovator. So, so what does technology mean? Uh, you know, I don't know. I've, I've sort of played around with this for a few minutes. But I'd say any tool that we create, anything we do that aids human flourishing on the planet. Right? So that includes um, medical areas and all, uh, 
w technology that aids in, in drudgery reduction and, uh, and everything you can think of. And anyway, you may well come up with your own definition, but it's something along the lines, technology is anything, any kind of tool we make or employ to assist uh, the well-being of human beings on the planet because technology recognizes at the outset that essentially we live in a hostile planet. We live in a planet uh, of um, temperature excesses, and you know, unless you happen to be fortunate enough to live in the Pacific Northwest, but elsewhere in the country, uh, temperature excesses, uh, weather, you know, there's hurricanes, there's tornadoes, there's heat, there's cold, uh, air conditioning, great piece of technology, heating, home heating, a huge breakthrough uh, in, in, uh, in, in technology. Uh, there's disease. Um, there, there, there are dangers of all kinds. Apart from anything else, the challenge of extracting food from an often reluctant earth. All of these things uh, require ways of taming the earth, ways of, well, conquering the earth really is what it's all about. And so perhaps the moral edict of technology really flows from the book of Genesis, chapter 1, verse 28. And God blessed them, that means men and women. And by the way, one of the sources of the gender hysteria surrounding our secular culture not only in the United States, but elsewhere around the world as well, is the previous verse. God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And anything that uh, the Bible expresses is something which modern secular fundamentalists are absolutely organically compelled to oppose. Secular fundamentalists are congenitally equipped to resist with intense hostility anything that the Bible says. And, and this, this uh, tense relationship between Western civilization and the Bible um, has been going on for a very long time. And so Genesis 1, chapter, uh, chapter 1, verse 27, male and female he created them. Well, then we're going to show that it's nothing to do with male and female. Uh, next sentence, and God blessed them, said, be fruitful and multiply. Oh, he did, he, did he? He said you should have children. Well, we'll declare having children an assault on the planet. And indeed, by the way, there are politicians, not just in America, but elsewhere around the world, who wish to impose horrendously confiscatory rates of taxation on parents who have more than one child. The China one-child policy was used brute force, and other cultures are using a different kind of force, namely economic force, which is just as serious, every bit as serious. Uh, if, anyone, if people want to have more than one or sometimes two children, they will pay for it. And that's all the uh, secular fundamentalist reaction to chapter 1, verse 28. Anyways, next uh, verse um, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, and here comes the crucial word, and conquer it. The Hebrew, if you're interested, is conquer it. That's not a sinister word. 
Uh, conquering doesn't mean obliterate. It doesn't mean destroy. It doesn't mean uh, damage. No. Conquering means redirect for your use. When one nation conquers another nation, the generally speaking, what they do is they dismantle the factories and ship them back to their country to set them up over there. Or they have the, uh, the populace of that country working for their good. Conquering means not destroying, but making it flourish, but for your good, not for anyone else's good. And so conquering the earth is simply this recognition that we live on a planet that without this edict of conquering, we couldn't live because it's not a welcoming planet. Now, I know this flies in the face of much of the uh, back-to-nature movement. It flies in the face of much of the organizations that do everything they can to fight technological uh, progress. Uh, they fight the energy industry. They fight... Uh, all agricultural innovation, uh, all of these things, yeah. well, because nature on its own is perfect just the way it is. Well, uh, you know, when you look at a, a beautiful lake or a forest or a mountain, yeah, it, it is beautiful. But uh, if that's all you do, gaze upon its beauty and admire it, you are destined to die because that's not how the world really works. Uh, before we uh, continue, our website, rabbidaniellappin.com, rabbidaniellappin.com, and uh, the, uh, uh, there's a great sale right now, just for a short while, on a uh, program, a one-hour audio program called Day for Atonement. And the reason is because I'm preparing this program uh, not that long before Yom Kippur, the uh, Hebrew Day of Atonement. Uh, it is 10 days after the New Year, the Hebrew New Year begins. And so a, an audio program that explains this idea of the, the great internal joy that springs from being able to wipe the slate clean. Uh, to be able to get rid of even the slightest elements of subtle self-loathing that holds so many of us back sometimes. All of that uh, you'll see at rabbidaniellappin.com. And uh, also, by the way, great time to think about the library packs. Right? We have various collections of all our work, and the uh, and at different times of the year we find ways to make it accessible to people. So look out for the library packages uh, at rabbidaniellappin.com. Okay, I'll give you a moment to uh, engage in economic interaction with me, and then we shall return. The Blaze on Demand. The Blaze on Demand. This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin. Hi, I'm Rabbi Daniel Lappin, and Retirement Curveball is a book by a finance expert that I respect, Dr. Tom McPhee. Whether you are thinking about retirement, are already retired, or have never given the big R even a thought, now is the time to welcome the contents of this book into your mind. The book is filled with compelling aha moments and will motivate you to make some highly effective changes in how you manage your money and your life. I know Dr. Tom McPhee and his terrific book, Retirement Curveball, and I do recommend it. Get the book at retirementcurveball.com or on Amazon. Welcome back to Rabbi Daniel Lappin, On Demand. 
only on the Blaze Radio Network. We're back, everybody, and uh, continuing an exploration of technology. Because I'm sure that you, if not today, then tomorrow or the next day, uh, will have a decision to make that has a bearing on technology. Uh, you might be trying to decide whether to get your children uh, tablets or phones. You might be thinking of expanding technology. You might be thinking of delving into social media. Uh, maybe you think that you ought to be advertising your business on Facebook and you're starting to look into that area. But whatever it is, more than likely, you have decisions to make that have something to do with technology. And so for that reason, I wanted to present a little bit of a perhaps a different view on technology in today's show. Uh, perhaps a view from 30,000 feet instead of from down at the ground, which is where most of us operate most of the time. So what are we, what are we looking at? Well, uh, first of all, I think it's worthwhile noting that digital technology has been with us now for more than 40 years, right? Well over 40 years. But at any rate, four decades is a fairly reasonable period of time in order to evaluate the impact of something. Okay, so uh, let's take a look and see. How has life really improved in these past 40 years? And uh, if we do have improvements, can they be attributed to digital technology? Okay, well, for a start, we have more stuff. No question about it. We do have more stuff. Um, but we also have, perhaps for many people in the country, a greater fear of crime than we used to have in, shall we say, 1975. Um, you can, you know, when did digital technology really start? Well, I, again, it's difficult to put a finger on it because it was in the labs and in the technology uh, departments uh, fairly early. But the time most of us sort of became aware of it was uh, 74, 75. That was when uh, Steve Jobs and uh, Mr. Wozniak were busy turning out their first Apple computer. That was, that was when uh, Bill Gates was playing around with software. So it, people started using these words and thinking of it. So to me, mid-70s is kind of when uh, the digital revolution really began. Uh, fear of crime? I don't think that's any better. But it's interesting that when you go back to even as recently as the 90s, you will find um, politicians, pundits, futurists. Remember Alvin Toffler? Uh, there were many people like this who predicted very confidently that technology would end crime because we would have such fine systems to fight crime that it would, to all intents and purposes, uh, become an unprofitable enterprise, people would stop doing it. And again, anybody with any sense of real wisdom at the time would have said, 
Sorry, but you're speaking unadulterated bilge water. It's simply not true. Uh, all that will happen is that there will be some criminals who will be able to use technology to good effect. There will be some law enforcement that will use technology to good effect. But overall, it's not going to make any difference. And, of course, it hasn't. Um, the, um, the amount of hours that you would have to work at your job today to afford a pair of shoes or a loaf of bread compared to how many hours you would have had to have worked at your job, assuming the same job in 1975, to achieve those same things, not a whole lot of difference. In some cases, it's gone up. How well equipped for life do children leave school? Better now than in 1975 or worse? Well, you can answer that one uh, for yourself. Uh, but as ill-equipped as they may be graduating from the nation's government indoctrination camps, formerly known as public schools, they may be ill-equipped, but they all have smartphones. That's right. Every single last one of them have smartphones. How about cars? Right. Does it take more hours of work to buy a car today or to have bought one in 1975? Well, you might say, look how improved the cars are today over 1975. Well, that's as well may be. But the fact remains that your transportation needs are much more expensive today than they were then. Uh, and look, it's not, I'm not painting only a negative picture, of course. That isn't true. One of the, the biggest technological upheavals and transformations in modern times happened in 1913, right, when Henry Ford started operating his assembly line for building the Model T. Okay, it's, it's pretty amazing, because in six years, from 1914 to 1920, we went from, you know, almost nothing to eight million cars on American roads in six years. Now, of course, we, we often speak about the dislocation of jobs, you know, the, the, uh, the apocryphal buggy whip maker, all the guys who made harnesses for horses and wagon wheels and whips and guys who swept up the manure from the streets of big cities in America. It was a huge job, by the way, uh, because all transportation was horse-drawn. All of a sudden, in a short period of time, unbelievably rapid adoption, six years, eight million cars on the road. But think about what that means. All of a sudden, they need tires. And so rubber, vulcanizing a rubber, there, all of a sudden, the, the number of small shops and big factories that were building tires, right, skyrocketed. Uh, road construction, imagine how many thousands of new jobs came that way. Um, gas stations began to uh, dot the land. Mechanics all of a sudden could earn a good living. Um, oil and steel were two established industries, but they got a huge boost because of the demand for cars. Uh, travelers on the road needed shelter, so motels started popping up on the long-distance routes. 
um, fast food, right, began to, to, to exist, even though it didn't really take off until a few decades later. Anyways, uh, that's, that's, how things, that's how things went. And yes, the arrival of that technology uh, created huge opportunities in exactly the same way that the uh, creation of the smartphone also created all kinds of new opportunities. The Airbnb for accommodation, Uber and Lyft and many other similar so-called ride-sharing technologies, uh, to name just a few. Yes, of course. And uh, was communication assisted? Sure. Look at eBay. Look at Amazon. Uh, just, yeah, communication has produced a lot of good. But at the same time, let's take a look at uh, people engaged with their phones, people engaged with earphones in their ears. Are people interacting with one another more now or more in 1975? And again, the technological pundits at the time all said, oh, technology is going to make communication revolutions and it's going to make a huge change and a huge difference. Well, it's really difficult to make the case that uh, the Internet caused more communication between people than the Telegraph did in 1844. For, for your children... Have they become better communicators or worse communicators? First it was television, and now it is uh, portable devices. Are they better at expressing their ideas in writing? And make no mistake, by the way, don't think that that's obsolete. Being able to express yourself in writing is very important. And it's something, if you're a parent, you would be remiss in not making sure that you do whatever it takes to make certain that your children can communicate in writing. But before they can communicate in writing, they've got to be able to communicate in person. And that means talking articulately and fluently. That is something not assisted by the revolution in texting. Right? WhatsApp is wonderfully useful. I wouldn't want to be without it. But has it made us more effective people? I think a case can be made not. So if I had to come up with an analogy, I would probably take the idea of an orchestra. An orchestra is made up of about a hundred, full orchestra, about a hundred musicians. And they're playing a variety of different instruments. There's the woodwind section, the brass section, the string section, all these different sections. And each one, uh, each musician has to be very competent at what he does. So if you gather together a hundred competent musicians, do you have an orchestra? No, because they haven't yet learned how to play together. They haven't yet become part of this group dynamic called an orchestra that can play music. And that takes a lot of time and a lot of effort. It's not a perfect analogy, but at least it, it suggests one of the concerns that we should all have, which is that the technology is there. Every musician can play his instrument. Every young person can work their smartphone and, and do things that their grandparents can't even imagine. It's all true. But does that make society function better? Are we better people as a result of that? 
And the answer is not necessarily so. Not at all necessarily so. So what does all this mean? And where are we headed? Let me take a shot at explaining that just as soon as we return. Our website, rabbidaniellappin.com. Please visit there. Uh, first of all, I would love to be able to make sure we can communicate with one another. And we do that by making certain that you are subscribed to receive Thought Tools or Susan's Musings or Ask the Rabbi or all of them. Uh, there is also a lot of information on the website. You can dig into past issues going way back. So uh, visit the website. You can also send a question to me, or you can go ahead and just communicate. Always love hearing from you. I respond, as you know, to about, uh, I used to say about a third of all uh, people who wrote to me. It's now more like 25%, I suppose. Uh, but it kind of depends what else I've got going on, and I've just been very, very busy lately. So at any rate, I do read them all, love seeing them. So contact us is the tab you'll see uh, on the website at rabbidaniellappin.com. You will also see a uh, audio CD program that you can download for the price of a cup of coffee at an expensive national chain whose name will not be mentioned as they are no not sponsors of the show. Uh, but at any rate... It's called a Day for Atonement, and it um, speaks about how the uh, biblical festival of the Day of Atonement, even though it's a fast day, uh, can be used by people of every background to improve the quality of their lives and, in fact, to improve themselves. Uh, you might say a smartphone improves the quality of your life in certain ways. It certainly can. Does it make you a better person? No, that's something else entirely. That requires a different kind of effort and something that only each and every one of us can do ourselves. This uh, audio program called Day for Atonement is a guide to how to accomplish that self-improvement model that produces such deep-seated joy when we accomplish it and when we do achieve that. Uh, all of that at rabbidaniellappin.com. Back with you in a moment. I am your rabbi, as always. You're listening to Rabbi Daniel Lappin on demand on the Blaze Radio Network. Find more at theblaze.com slash radio. Revealing how the world really works. This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin on demand on the Blaze Radio Network. Continuing. Your rabbi, me, Rabbi Daniel Lappin. Available for all you happy warriors. Reminding you that the more that things change, the more we need to depend upon those things that never change. That's right. And talking of technology, it's hard to think of anything that is more indicative of change than in the areas of technology. Uh, you know, imagine if our gaze was restricted to the area of, uh, shall we say, architecture. And just looking at architecture, it wouldn't be that easy to show enormous change from 1975 to 2018. It wouldn't appear to be that much difference. If you look at philosophy, 
Um, if you look at um, medicine, there have been a lot of changes, but that's, I regard that as part of technology. Uh, actually, even building houses is, is technological, obviously. But it's in technology primarily that, that we can see these changes. But if there is one essential lesson of ancient Jewish wisdom in all of this, it is that external objects do not change who we are. You know, if, if you are a person who procrastinates, all right, then uh, the arrival of computers does not stop you from procrastinating. Procrastinating is an internal moral issue. Right? It's an inability to effectively administer self-discipline. Right? It's, it's, n it's not following what your head tells you you must do, but it's following your heart telling you what you want to do. And so you can buy all the computer programs you like, all the project management pieces that you care about. None of that's going to change who you are. You're still going to do the same thing. Um, a man who in 1975 um, was um, enthralled by uh, pornography in the form of, I don't know, Playboy magazine or whatever else he was using uh, for his purposes back in 1975. All of a sudden, we jump forward to 2018, and now he has a smartphone or a computer has this made him a better person in this particular area? Of course not. It's just provided more opportunity, that's all. Nothing's changed. That's the point. The arrival of technology in the form of things doesn't change the sort of people we are. It is possible that in certain areas it makes us worse. But overall, it's probably fair to say that in general it affects no change. It only changes what we can do. It's now already well established that schools that do not allow technology are doing every bit as well and in many cases better than schools that tumbled over their own toes in an effort to bring technology in. There are still schools, many private schools, many public schools that boast that as soon as the child starts in whatever grade it is, the child gets a tablet or the child gets a computer. All that means is that in a bad teaching environment, there's more distraction because learning is a moral process. Do you follow what I'm saying? The ability to discipline yourself to sit and absorb information from somebody called a teacher requires, first of all, the ability to make yourself subservient to the teacher. Because if you don't believe in humility with respect to the teacher, you can't learn anything. <laughs> Why would you allow anything into your brain from somebody to whom you consider yourself superior? And so education cannot happen without a moral dimension. Education depends on the quality of the person. And the idea that introducing technology is all of a sudden going to change the quality of people. It's complete nonsense. It's not true. Um, you know, in 1787, a little more than 200 years ago, uh, the Northwest Ordinance was passed. 
And in it, the phrase I always remember is that religion, morality, and knowledge being necessary to good government and the happiness of mankind, schools and the means of education shall forever be encouraged. I sometimes think about what the authors of the Northwest Ordinance would think or say if they walked into a gick, into a government indoctrination camp today. Because schools and the means of education shall all forever be encouraged. But then they'd look and they'd say, well, they certainly are schools, but what's going on can hardly be described as education. Religion, morality, and knowledge being necessary. In other words, for a society to function, they said that's what you need. Um, around about the same time, Benjamin Franklin, what a guy he was. Benjamin Franklin printed a pamphlet which he arranged to circulate in Europe with the purpose of encouraging European immigrants to come to America. And I want, you to, I want to read to you just a few lines from his, his, uh, his pamphlet. Right? It's amazing. This is in the late 1700s. And he's talking about normal American life. And he's talking to people in Europe saying, hey, you should come here because, quote, bad examples to youth are more rare in America, which must be a comfortable consideration to parents. To this may be truly added that serious religion under its various denominations is not only tolerated but respected and practiced. Atheism is unknown there. Infidelity, rare and secret, so that persons may live to a great age in America without having their piety shocked by meeting with either an, either an atheist or an infidel. And the divine being seems to have manifested his approbation of the mutual forbearance and kindness with which the different sects treat one another by the remarkable prosperity with which he has been pleased to favor the whole country. Isn't that beautiful? By the way, many people try to insist that Benjamin Franklin was not a religious man. He was a deist. He was this. Does that sound like somebody who doesn't value God and faith? I don't think so. So, uh, yeah, quality of people is what makes the difference. And that's why it is that there's a world of difference between bringing in male, young male immigrants from the Middle East and North Africa and bringing in immigrants from Europe. Now, obviously, some people listening to me are going, oh, it's racial, it's color, it's skin color. No, it isn't. No, it isn't. Because uh, I, for instance, have spoken favorably and enthusiastically about African immigrants from Zimbabwe, Ghana, and Nigeria. Not all, but many of them are devout Christians, and they arrive in America making a terrific contribution. It's wonderful. The same is true in the United Kingdom. I've spoken about this in the past, that most, well, I, I, a, a huge number, maybe I'm correct when I say most, but certainly a huge number of British churches are today led by pastors from Zimbabwe, Zambia, Ghana, Nigeria, 
and they're doing a phenomenal job. The Church of England, led by white, <laughs> old uh, uh, British clergyman, um, pretty much dead. Nothing's going on there. But evangelical churches, led in many cases by African pastors, huge. It's an amazing thing. So, um, no, it's all culture, not color. That's the important thing. It's culture, not color. And has technology assisted culture at all? Hard to say that it has. Very hard to say so. And so what really is going on? And I, I want to suggest to you that one of the things that's going on is a lull in technological development. Oh, there'll be refinements. There'll be changes, right? Uh, the, the car of today is almost unchanged from the car of 1948, right? The Oldsmobile or Buick or Cadillac in 1948 had automatic transmission and it had uh, all kinds of wonderful things. Um, the car today, it's got GPS and it's got uh, voices that tell you you haven't uh, put on your seatbelt yet. Uh, all of these, but this is just additional stuff built on. Autonomous cars, self-driving vehicles, the jury is still out on that. Uh, when those things take many, many more years to arrive than the pundits have been saying for the last 10 years, do remember you heard it on the Rabbi Daniel Lappin show first. And so in, in previous years, in times gone by, there have been periods of incredibly frantic, furious, amazingly rapid technological transformation. There have been times like that, uh, 1750 to 18-something. Uh, uh, I'd, I'd have to look at it. Uh, uh, let me say it 100 years. Now, I, uh, from 1750, certainly to, the, to 1800, enormous, enormous development technologically, uh, most of it taking place in England, but also elsewhere as well, and um, huge, huge developments. But there have also been times of lulls where there's been not that much going on technologically. Um, as I said, after the Roman Empire collapsed from about 400 to 800, you know, the Middle Ages, that's just, those are just my dates. I'm sure historians will much more precisely identify it. But you won't go far wrong if you look at it from 400 to 800. Um, there were certainly things going on then. You know, as I said earlier, there was certainly a time when certain developments in plowing, certain developments in, in how to use animals, certain developments in windmills, um, developments in uh, s uh, saws, the, uh, things that can cut wood. Uh, there were certainly those developments happening, but there were also lengthy periods, decades at a time, where absolutely nothing was happening. And uh, during that time, well, le let me go back to uh, where we are now. I think it is possible that we might be entering a period of technological lull, okay? Will there still be developments? Sure, there'll be uh, molecular biology will continue coming up with things, and yes, there'll be uh, electronic developments and there'll be software developments, but mostly incremental is my guess. Not a whole lot. Why? Well, uh, let me look at it this way. Uh, one reason 
is because of size. Uh, there has been technological development over the years that has taken place at the upper end of size. Building the Titanic, you know, was, uh, was a huge development. It was an, a technological masterpiece. If you think about what was involved in building that in the time it was built in Belfast, Northern Ireland, you know, you start seeing the amazing feat it was. We're not building big ocean liners anymore. We're not building huge uh, locomotives. We're, we're building locomotives, but really big stuff, yeah. Bridges, there are some big bridges being built in Europe, but the overwhelming majority of bridges that are going to be built over the next couple of years in the United States and, and in many other parts of the world will be very ordinarily-sized uh, bridges. Um, size, at the, not a whole lot going on at the upper end. How about at the lower end? Well, I ask you to think back a few years, and you'll remember cell phones were much smaller than they are today. We hit the size limit going down, and we've started going up again. And so today, although it was possible to make cell phones that were very much smaller, people aren't buying those. For the most part, people are buying slightly larger phones, and the market is reacting, whether it's Apple or Samsung or the numerous other manufacturers. Why? Well, because there are certain limitations of size down at the bottom end. For instance, what happened with phones is that human fingers have a certain size, and human eyes have an ability to discriminate uh, and, and see resolution of a certain size. What happened was that phones, it was gimmicky to have such a teensy phone, but the fact is it was not that useful because I couldn't press only one key. My fingers were pressing multiple keys, and I couldn't read half of what was on the screen. It was too small. And so we said, you know what? We've got to go back up in size. And after all, we're not going to a huge size. It's still going to fit in my pocket, which is where most people carry a phone anyway or in women's purses. So if it's this tiny size or a more usable size, makes no difference. I'll go with a usable size. And so um, just the, 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 the fact that human beings have certain size and certain physical abilities, that sort of limits something of the downward trend. And the other problem is that uh, we hit physical limits at the bottom end. In other words, um, as long as we could make integrated circuits smaller and smaller, giving electrons a shorter distance to travel was an enormous advantage. The, thing, the whole thing operated more quickly. But we've reached the point now where we're running up against certain molecular limitations. And so it cannot go very much smaller. Um, will they, you know, what will happen? Will we find ways around it? More than likely, human ingenuity is limitless. And so in due course, something will, will happen. But it's hard to imagine that things are going to go very much smaller. Somewhat so, but it'll be incremental, not revolutionary. And so uh, I, I'm, I'm certainly not making the mistake of saying, oh, everything that could possibly be invented has been invented. I'm not saying that. But I'm saying that the natural tempo of technological development, whether we're talking about fire or uh, steam power or electricity or nuclear or whatever we're talking about, there's a natural tempo to it. And it requires uh, a lot of things happening socially and connectivity-wise. And 
you know, one of the reasons that technology slowed after the collapse of the Roman Empire have to do with these things I'm talking about. And so uh, uh, far from saying everything that's being developed, is, I'm not saying anything silly like that, but I am saying that we may be entering another one of those periods where there's a bit of a lull technologically, where for a certain period of time, how long? I don't know, five years, 10, 15 years, maybe something like that. Uh, for the next maybe, and I'm, I'm guessing around about 10 years, um, a slight slowdown in the pace of technological transformation. And uh, I think I'm seeing signs of that, perhaps in the growing number of articles I've been reading about people wanting experiences more than things. Uh, this is particularly prevalent in discussions on vacations, things like that, and travel, where uh, people are looking for experiences, right? something that lasts something that impacts on you as a person rather than something external. Um, presence, even weddings, many, many weddings now are said to be weddings where people are asked to, instead of giving a, another fish slice or another food processor or another place setting, instead of giving the couple things, help the couple have a, an experience. And on the, on the wish list, for weddings, you now very often find things like, you know, Costa Rica nature tour, a scuba trip. Or this, uh, that, that's what people want experiences. Why? Because if technology is saying it's more about people and experiences, excuse me, if technology is saying everything in life is the things you can hold in your hand, the buttons you can press, uh, then you're not that interested in things that impact you. You're interested in the things you can hold. And that's why I want the latest telephone and I want the latest car and I want the latest technology. But if there is a little bit of a lull in technology, uh, then I start looking more into me. And experiences impact me much more than acquiring a new food processor impacts me. That would be one uh, indication to me. Another one is this very negative trend that men are bad, women are good, you know, which, which permeates leftist culture today. Essentially a war on males, particularly white males, but the colors again irrelevant. We're talking culture, not color. But um, okay, what is the difference between men and women? There are many differences, but uh, for the purposes of this discussion, one of the differences is that women are more into people and men are more into things in general. This is one of the reasons that uh, the official statistics show that um, women medical students choose specialties that apply, that have more to do with people, whereas men choose specialties more having to do with things. An anesthesiology, right? You don't have much to do with a patient. The patient's asleep. Radiology, you're looking at a picture. Uh, women do obstetrics, gynecology, uh, pediatrics. Uh, it's just what they choose. In general, in general, women tend to choose activities that bring them into contact with people. Men are more comfortable with activities that bring them into contact with things. And if the culture is becoming more feminized, if you like, which in general I think is obviously a dangerous thing, but if it is, 
then again, there's likely to be more concern about people than about things, which means that perhaps in years to come we'll say, uh, what were we thinking? Why were we letting children walk around all day with earbuds in their ears? Why were we letting children spend all their time texting on machines instead of getting together with other children? What, what were we thinking? What was the matter with us? It's very possible we'll look back on this time, and it's also possible that we're entering a period where there will be some rectification of this, where more and more of us are going to be saying, yes, we need human experience more than we need things. And if that is the case, then uh, more people will be drawn to those areas as opposed to uh, being drawn to an area where you sit locked in a room coding or sitting locked in a room designing a new piece of technology. Not that any of this is going to stop you, say, but, uh, but at the same time, merely that uh, statistically, particularly looking back on it, we'll probably be able to see that, we're that this period starts a period of a slight lull in technological transformation and perhaps a little bit more of a focus on ourselves a little bit more of a focus on building the orchestra rather than simply becoming uh, technologically proficient at the saxophone and uh, and i think that may be exactly where it is that uh, we are finding ourselves and if that's the case uh, these are things worth bearing in mind if you are choosing a career if you're thinking about expanding your business into certain areas, um, it just might be worthwhile considering the possibility that throughout history, uh, technology has always existed throughout history. Technology has not always grown and expanded at the same straight line pace. Yes, uh, it is uh, logarithmic in development, no question about it. But there are also periods in history where we can look and see that there were quieter periods where not much was going on technologically. And that doesn't mean that those were dark ages and nothing was happening. People were doing other things, uh, whether it was writing books or developing the theater or, or whatever it was, people were doing things. And it is just possible that we're looking at a time now where the same thing is happening. I am watching with avid interest uh, the, the, uh, the, the, the group of people that are today uh, in the uh, 18 to 25-year-old range. What interests them? And I try and talk to folks like that as much as I can uh, to try and get a sense of what it is that they're thinking, what do they want in their lives. And, uh, and if I'm correct on this, then one of the things I'll be seeing is that uh, they are less concerned with the latest technology, perhaps more concerned with personal development, more concerned with making more of themselves. Instead of focused on the tools you can acquire and sharpening those tools, maybe the focus will become sharpening oneself, making oneself more than one is at the present time. That's what I'm going to be looking at with avid interest. That's as far as we go, folks, and uh, I hope that you have a wonderful week of good times with your family, with your faith, with your friends, and with your finances. I'm Rabbi Daniel Lappin. God bless. Ancient Solutions to Modern Problems. 
This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin, on demand, on the Blaze Radio Network.